It's probably worth noting that I do like this episode, but the premise is ridiculous. It's so often a thing in a Star Trek, isn't it? So they're in the Gamma Quadrant, scouting on a planet for mining operations. Now, that's, there's already problems with that sentence right there, uh, including the words Gamma Quadrant and mining operations. Worf even mentions how it will be difficult to actually establish a proper supply line to this place because of the distance and, of course, the fact that it'll have to go through the wormhole. But no, no, we'll do it. Thing is, there's also a line about this being very far from Dominion space. Okay, so that makes it safer, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's, that's a thing, right? Even though this very episode showcases how relatively easy it is for a fairly small number of Jem'Hadar ships, two, in fact, to make a huge problem for this situation, but anyways. And that's another thing. They mentioned that there's a Jem'Hadar ship way off course. They never answer why. Doubly important since it's a Jem'Hadar ship that happened to have a founder on board, but I'm getting off topic again. So, okay, I'm willing to accept, for whatever reason, that they just really need to mine this stuff from the Gamma Quadrant, like it's super valuable or super important or something. You know, maybe some lines of dialogue to establish why they care so much about this specific mineral, and more to the point, right now. Why they can't wait to get it other, other, under other circumstances or from other planets. Okay, I'm accepting that. Why'd they come here in a runabout? <laughs> really, why did they come here in a runabout? I mean, runabouts are basically vans when it comes to Star Trek. They certainly have a lot of utility purpose, but when you're going into an area that is at the very least known to be hostile and patrolled by an enemy who is uh, your enemy, maybe you should consider sending the Defiant to begin with. It's also mentioned, by the way, that it's going to take the Defiant a week to get there. So they are way in the Gamma Quadrant at that point. So they took a runabout way into the Gamma Quadrant with no possibility of support or backup other than sending a message and waiting a week. Okay, a week's an exaggeration. Actually, probably close to three days, but still. Three days travel is a fairly long distance in. So it's a week full round trip is what I'm trying to say. <clears throat> Whatever. I do like how the, the reason the Jem'Hadar all died, and probably the founder too, is because of the fact that they had an inertial dampener failure. Too often, writers tend to forget the um, absolutely critical importance of inertial dampeners. So it's kind of nice to see that they all died horribly by basically being crushed to death by their own mass because of the failure of that. It's just a nice touch there. I just wanted to comment on that. Um, so... You know, they, they take out the runabout, first thing, of course. It's a shame they didn't have the Defiant with them. And then they go, why didn't they take the Defiant? Oh, my God. Okay, I know what you're thinking. They want to keep the Defiant by Deep Space Nine. All right, fair enough. Why not send a real ship? If the need is so urgent to have this mining operation established three days into the Gamma Quadrant, why not send a real ship? I know, I know, I know. I've complained about this so often. You know what? I'll let go of it the moment they start actually using real ships on this show. They will do it. They will actually happen at a certain point in time. But it's just ridiculous how our options are van or the best warship we've created to date. And nothing in between. I know it sounds like I'm complaining, and, it's, and I am, I am. I'm absolutely complaining, but it's because I, this premise just is ridiculous in my opinion. It's like they're like, okay, we need them to get stuck here, and we need to make sure they're totally helpless so they can have this siege thing. Okay, then we get to the episode proper, which is good stuff. Um, one of the things that's mentioned is the Jem'Hadar don't want to go in, A, with energy weapons, and B, just all a-blazing. Now, 
What's funny to me is I think they should have probably considered that as a backup option, but I suppose they didn't know when exactly to try that. At the same time, I do get the mentality. You know, any stray shot, even if they go in without energy weapons, the Federation people will be using energy weapons to defend themselves. So it's entirely feasible that they will not have the ability to prevent them from accidentally shooting the founder. So it's a, it's, in other words, it's a risk, uh, not insubstantial risk of getting damage to the founder, who they already know is already damaged, and ergo, it makes sense that they would not do a full assault. So that makes sense to me. I'm with that. I'm with that. And you'll notice her first ta tactic is just to talk. So you come with us, we'll let you be on your merry way. Now, I don't blame Cisco for not going for that deal because that's an absolutely terrible deal. <laughs> that's, that's incredibly awful and terrible. Her second tactic is, how about we try trading? You know, I, you, you, you keep the ship. You just, uh, you let us go on and take what we need from this ship. You know, it's, it's nothing important. I want to give special praise, by the way, to the woman who plays Kilana. Uh, first of all, <laughs> this is actually, I believe, her first introduction into Star Trek. Her second introduction will be later on Voyager, where she plays <clears throat> Janeway. But <laughs> I think she does a very good job with the role overall. What I find funny, though... Too often, Star Trek, how do I put this, tries to be sexy. Now, in my opinion, for the most part, Star Trek and sexy kind of work well together. I know that sounds like a strange thing to comment since I'm pretty anti-romance and pretty anti-sexy, but I think that for the most part, Star Trek can manage to be very sexy. That's a thing since the TOS era, right? However, in my experience, it never manages it when it is trying to. Unless we're talking about some of the costumes of the TOS era, let's not even get into that because it's a separate topic. But when Star Trek actively tries to be sexy, like Captain's Holiday, for example, just to use an example right off the top of my head, it tends to just fall on its face. I mention that because this is one of the rare exceptions. Kilana comes across as sexy, but not sexy, if you know what I mean. I know that's a strange way to put that, but the point is not that, hey, check out this lady. It's more like, this is deliberately what she is doing to manipulate the situation. This is her modus operandi, in other words. This is what she does in order to try and ensure success in her missions. It's another take, because we've seen four Vorta to date. Um, three of which were supposed to be the same Vorta, by the way. I should mention that this was once again supposed to be Eris. Again, again. Since Borath back in The Surge 2 was supposed to be Eris as well. <laughs> so once again, this was written to be the same actress, and once again they couldn't get the actress back. That is always the problem with this kind of show, but... Anyways, I think it would have been really awesome if it was the same character, but what the hell do I know? Anyway, so instead it's Kilana. Now, she deliberately exposes too much of her cleavage. She has ex expensive jewelry. She's got her hair down and loose. She's got a lot of makeup on. And the actress herself does a good job of portraying this kind of, oh, I'm just kind of a ditz, tee-hee-hee sort of a presentation. All of which is a lie and a manipulation. That's the point. And I think that's why it succeeds here. Because she's not sexy. She's manipulative. And there is a difference between those two things. And so instead, she is trying to portray herself as this weak, meek, pitiable little, oh, I'm just, I'm just, I can't, I don't know how to deal with this situation. Maybe you can help me out. And, and she does a lot of really nice, subtle movements with her face and her eye movements. It's a very good performance overall. I love it, especially because every now and again, she just completely drops the mask and you just see... The Vorta there, the commander, who just ordered the death of everyone on that runabout up above. A lot of people tend to kind of skip over that mentally, but this is the woman who's, who did, ordered the destruction of that runabout and the death of those four, uh, three, four? Five people died total, and I think it was four on the runabout, but I'm not actually sure about that. Anyways, the people died up there. 
without hesitation, without communication. You know, that's who this woman is. And she, so she does a good job of both roles, the commander and the, oh, tee-hee-hee. So I wanted to give her special praise for that. So she tries trading. That doesn't work. And then she tries stress. There's no food, there's no water, there's no escape, and we're bombarding you constantly. At one point or another, you will break. And that is pretty much the last option they have. Now, I'm pretty sure we could armchair some other options you could have here. And, and in fact, I would love to hear if any of you have any other ideas of what Kilana should have done in these circumstances. But given that a frontal assault was basically out of the question, and an infiltrative assault was already proven to fail especially since they didn't know where the founder was. Now remember, those scanners can't detect them based on their makeup. So, I'm curious what other options we had here. I'm going to leave my own thoughts on that to the side. I just want to hear your thoughts, if you have any, of course. One thing I do wonder, why does the founder never try to flee? No, excuse me, now I do have my own theory on that. I think the founder basically couldn't. That it was so damaged that all it could do was maintain its shape and hide there for, what, three days, basically, just like, Ugh. and that was taking all it had. Any attempt to move would have been kind of like, I, I like to picture it like Odo back in um, uh, Apocalypse Rising, whatever the name of the episode was, where Odo was barely capable of maintaining his shape. In other words, not something that's going to be able to fight, hide, or flee with speed. So in other words, an, a non-viable option. That's just my own headcanon. I don't know any of any the thoughts on that one. So, I do want to mention one thing. Just This is a very small side note, because this is another tidbit for the nature of Dominion cruelty. Jem'Hadar weapons are designed to prevent coagulation of blood. Now, it's not really done to be, to be cruel. It's done so that an injured person will slow down the rest of their unit. But it's once again kind of a, an insight into the mentality of the Dominion that they see absolutely nothing wrong with effectively torturing people to a slow death just to obtain a small tactical advantage in combat. Any means are acceptable because the ends justify them, is, is basically what I'm getting at here. They're not quite at space pirate levels, but they're certainly leaning in that direction. <laughs> I also want to mention, uh, well, before I talk about Munoz, I want to talk about, uh, how many of you have seen the episode in TNG, Devil's Do? It's not a great episode. But it does several things very well. And one of those things is it gets across the idea of exactly what you could do with the technology that exists in Star Trek. Which, as I've pointed out many times before, is something that a lot of the writers just kind of tend to jump over or forget or whatever. But one of the things she had was she had little eye movements that, would, that were programmed to cause basically automatic reactions to the ship. Like it, it had pre-programmed macros, effectively. And each macro would be accomplished by flickering an eye in a certain way. I point that out because at the end of this episode, Kilana is like, well, they're dead. Take the scoop and go ahead and leave. But her troops are dead. The Jem'Hadar killed themselves. So where does she beam out to? How does she beam out? Well, I'm already given the idea, the idea that she's able to just remotely activate this stuff without a command. Now, I point that out because that makes a lot of sense for a Dominion agent to be able to basically, at a moment's notice, with, with no seconds of delay, be able to beam out. And I point that out because why the hell doesn't the Federation use that? Because that would be very useful. A Federation has to do this. Beep. This is such and such. Get us out of here. You know, even if they're rushing, that's like three or four seconds of time to do that, and then the person has to lock on to them and get them out. 
rather than having an automated system which is keeping lock on and there's something you could do, maybe not an eye movement, but something or just beep and then immediate beam out as soon as you do that. I feel like that could be a very useful tool, but I mean, Lord knows the Federation doesn't like to use tools, so what the hell do I know? One of the things I've complained about over and over and over when it comes to Star Trek is the red shirt mentality. Uh, I've complained about that in DS9, TNG, Voyager, TOS, everything. Uh, it'll come up in Enterprise as well. The idea that the random nameless mooks have to die in order to prove that the situation is serious, when all it does is basically form the basis of cheap melodrama. I've talked about this many times. This episode, in many ways, was deliberately designed to do the opposite of that, to make you care about an individual red shirt who's dying. We've never met him before. Actually, that's not true. He's been in episodes before this, but <laughs> a semi-recurring extra who shows up, who's had lines before, and we get to watch him die slowly. And I think that's probably the best part of the episode. Now, apparently the intent from the writers was to form, to show how the, the working people form a bond, you know, the band of brothers kind of a thing. And it doesn't come across that way, and, I, and they complained about that, and I agree with that, but I still think it works just because it works for a different reason. See, this, is, <clears throat> this makes this more of an O'Brien and a Worf piece, and arguably Dax as well, and Cisco, than it does about Nunez and their crew. Instead, it showcases how this life matters. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know that sounds so strange, but this is a redshirt death where people give a damn and where people spend a fairly large chunk of the episode on focusing on this red shirt. I know he's wearing a gold shirt, but you get my point. It's the same thing. It's the same concept. They focus on this guy and show his slow, arduous, horrible death and how much that's tearing O'Brien apart to the part where he is completely refusing to accept reality. How much it's bothering Worf. Don't tell me Worf doesn't care. Don't even try that. Obviously, Worf is irritable and frustrated, but his statements about you should offer him an honorable death are being said not out of cruelty or out of barbarism or bloodthirst, but because he gives a damn. Because Worf does care about those under him, and he does understand other people's mentalities and perspectives, and his thinking is, that man is going to die. Let us offer him an honorable way out, as a kindness, as a respect. And then, of course, Dax, who is trying to raise the mood by via levity, and you can kind of tell, and, and credit to Terry Farrell, she just sounds more and more haggard the more that she tries to joke, until her final joke just sounds like it's no longer funny, but it's just caustic. And again, that's deliberate, because they're all being worn down by you know days of, of bombardment and enemy and stress and all that horrible stuff. And then they try to get the ship, take the ship off, and this is the best part. This, in my opinion, succeeds where Tasha Yar did not. Now, I've already given my opinion on the Tashiar death thing you know, many times, and I spent the whole episode talking about it. So all I'm going to reiterate here is that the one and only possible potential positive for the Tashiar death was to show that just about anyone can die, and it doesn't have to be some great glorious death. People sometimes just die. I feel like they executed that incredibly wrong, and I think yesterday's Enterprise did a better job of it, but moving on... What we are left with here is Munoz, who does not die some glorious death. He doesn't die for some great purpose. He slowly bleeds to death off camera. And that's great because, again, they're spending all this time and attention on the character. But then the camera basically focuses away just for like a couple minutes as they try to get the ship up. They fail, they put it down. <sighs> okay, whatever. And O'Brien goes back to Munoz just to talk to him, and Munoz is dead and died during the attempt. That was powerful. And again, the gentleman who plays O'Brien does a wonderful job of just... You know, there's just this moment of realization. And you can see how it just hits everyone. 
All of them, even Worf, but all of them just get hit by that. That's a good redshirt death right there. And the best part is, it was arguably for nothing. Now, I do feel like that's probably one of the true flaws of the script, other than the premise, which I already complained about. There's this bit where Cisco says, oh, they would have been alive if only we'd learned to trust each other, which just sounds like a little bit too generic of an anti-war message to me. Don't mistake me, I'm, I'm down with a good anti-war message. War is a terrible, terrible thing. But it's also a complicated thing, and it was a very complicated circumstance here as well. If if she had walked into this a little bit more open, saying, there is something we want on that ship. We are willing to trade you. It is sufficiently valuable that we are not willing to risk it. We are willing to trade you, the ship and your lives, for that, if you let us go in and take it and leave. And, and then Cisco was willing to trust her in return for it. That would have worked out. The problem is even that... See, this is why I say that's kind of a, a misaligned message here. Because let's assume Cisco took that deal. Picture this. They have now taken the only thing of value out of that ship, the Founder, and they are then taking the Founder away to leave. Now you might say, well, they're in such a rush to get away to get the Founder to help, to get back to the Great Link, that they would not be able to waste time. But it would take a couple of seconds to fire a couple of torpedoes down and... Hang on. Yeah. There we go. And that's the end of the ship. Just like that. There's nothing keeping the Dominion on their side of the bargain, especially since, remember, the Dominion has all the bargaining chips here. So that's why I say I don't feel like the anti, you know, the we should have just trusted each other message was valid because there was no establishment of said trust. They were sitting on the only thing keeping them alive. And they had all the cards in their hands. You know, it's kind of similar to the situation that happened back when uh, Oda was taken back to the Great Link. There's no bargaining power here, you know. Anyways, I actually don't have much else to say about this, although. <laughs> There's this bit where she mentions that those five deaths may save 5,000 or 5 million. Anybody who's seen this show knows why I find that statement funny. But at the end here, there's this little bit where Cisco is just... And they spend the entire denouement, 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 focusing on Cisco and how much he's struggling with the death of five red shirts. Only one of which we really got to know, but still. Two of which had lines, um... They go out of their way to show how much this bothers him. And if I might be so bold, the reading of the, the casualty list thing is something that should have been done before on Star Trek because it was an excellent addition to Deep Space Nine, in my opinion. Now, they primarily use it as a war vehicle because as conflict continues to escalate in Deep Space Nine, you know, we're going to have the whole you know, reading the casualty list thing as kind of a ritual. That, that makes sense when you're in wartime. I think it should have been a thing in Star Trek anyways. Very, again, because of the red shirt concept. Very rarely does anyone give a damn about the people who die on these missions. It's, a, it's actually the exception, and I have to point it out, when Star Trek actually bothers to, to, to properly show how much these deaths actually matter. You remember the guy in Civil Defense who just got phasered away out of existence? We don't even know that guy's name. He's never mentioned again. His death meant nothing. By contrast, we spent most of an episode discussing and analyzing Munoz and his life and his death. And that actually mattered then. And of course, we see how it bothers Sisko. He mentions moral and ethical issues of command. Now, I myself have spoken of the paradox of command. Because it is the job of any commander, any leader, to be able to look at a situation and see and, see and care about the microscopic and macroscopic pr perspectives equally. To be able to look at that and say, I care about the big picture and I'm willing to send my people to die, 
but I also care about my people and don't want them to die. And having to blend those two mentalities is the paradox of leadership and the burden of command. And I think Cisco does a very good job of analyzing that because as he mentions, you know, in Starfleet Academy, you're taught to distance yourself from your soldiers, which, um, well, all I'm going to say about that is that I disagree. I can't speak with authority on that one. I know that that is actually a debated topic even right now in real-life military affairs. It has been for all of human history, roughly, going back at least to the B.C. era. So I can kind of see why some... I, I understand the other side of the argument. I really do. But if I can add one little tidbit into this. You remember the episode To the Death? One of the big points about that episode was that a leader who... There was a big difference being shown between a leader who has expendable troops and a leader who has troops they care about being shown between Weyoun and the Jem'Hadar and Sisko and his people. And that episode did a good showing of both sides and how both sides have their merits and both sides have their detriments. But I would like to think, and this is just me, that at least someone at Starfleet understands the merits of giving a crap about your crew and not just thinking of them as units to be dispensed with as currency. Then again, this is Starfleet. <laughs> but the episode ends on a wonderful bit. Actually, it ends on two bits. First, Dax, you know, and Cisco says that doesn't make it any easier. You know, knowing that their deaths were worthwhile doesn't make it easier. And Dax's response is awesome. Maybe nothing should. That right there summarizes the mentality and difference between a Cisco and a Justice Lord. Because a Cisco will do the wrong thing for the right reason and be bothered by it. And nothing should make that easier. It should never become acceptable. It should never become normal. Because then you're a justice lord. Then it's the ordinary. Then it's the acceptable. Then of course I'm going to do this horrible thing. Why wouldn't I? It'll accomplish a greater good. The episode ends with Worf let's be honest, making up a ritual to sit there with O'Brien. And I do like that. Funnily enough, he did the same, uh, he's done similar things before in the past where he'll just make up a Klingon ritual because nobody knows Klingon rituals, right? But he does it as his own way of showing how much he cares. And then he goes and he sits vigil, basically, in order to make sure that no predators come. You know, obviously, that's not an, a difficulty on the Defiant, but it's just a memorial sort of a thing. And I like how the episode ends on O'Brien and Worf sitting vigil over the corpse of a red shirt. That right there, that's the Deep Space Nine I love. Hope you enjoyed my thoughts, guys. I'll see you next time.